it's time to come together. This conversation is at the next step. Culture is set by leadership and who you choose to put into positions of leadership. It's not as though the cancer is out of the body. It's not. Leadership of an organization at the very top is really important. They are the culture carriers. The collective women's voices have had the courage to rise up and say, enough. Something about shining a spotlight on a problem that helps break the taboo. It helps lift the stigma. We have to collaborate. It takes everybody. Accountability is something that we cannot afford to lose. We cannot let that go. We need to redefine respect. It isn't enough to simply talk about equality. One must believe in it. The day I start fighting for equality and for people that look like you and me will be the day I'm in my grave. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, and this is Press Forward, a podcast where we have conversations about workplace equality and solutions in our post-MeToo world. I'm a former journalist who, along with 12 courageous women, created Press Forward to change culture in American newsrooms and beyond. We look at new approaches and outside-the-box ideas, or reflect on past mistakes to find lessons learned so that everyone can do their best work, because this is not just a gender issue, it's one of human decency. Our podcast today is so crucially important when anyone who has any decency whatsoever is thinking about their workplace and workplace culture. If you are an entry-level employee, a manager, or a leader running a company, you absolutely must hear from Mr. Robert Sutton, our guest today. He is a professor of management science and engineering and a professor of organizational behavior by courtesy at Stanford. Sutton has been teaching classes on the psychology of business and management at Stanford since 1983. He is a co-founder of the Center for Work, Technology, and Organization, which he co-directed from 1996 to 2006. And he has written a plethora of articles and books on workplace culture and behavior, including Good Boss, Bad Boss, and the very famous The No Asshole Rule. Bob Sutton, thank you so much. I think you have captured something that is so essentially important right now in our cultural conversation and particularly in our workplace conversations. But I just want to start with you on your your book called The No Asshole Rule and tell us what that rule is and also why should every workplace have it the no asshole rule to me is having a set of norms or expectations that when uh people leave others feeling demeaned de-energized and disrespected such behavior is not viewed as acceptable and we can talk some about what to do about that and how it's enforced but to me that's where it starts is that such behavior is not tolerated There's a lot of people out there that would agree with you on that. What is the issues that are facing the workplace? Let's start with, I think, an important distinction before we dig into the negative effects of leaving others feeling demeaned and disrespected. There's an important distinction to me between, um, to use the terms between temporary and certified assholes. All of us under the wrong or right situations are capable of being disrespectful to others. And I think that it's very important to not just say, oh, there's those bad people who treat others like dirt, and I'm not one of them. Because people very rarely admit to themselves or others that uh, they're nasty people. So the motto I like to say is assholes are us. All of us under the wrong situations are capable of being disrespectful. We can talk about what those wrong situations are. So I think that's kind of the place 
to start. Absolutely. And you actually have a very good example in your book where you talk about a group that you were in where you were being an asshole. Yes, I was. <laughs> I forgot about that. So uh, so this was during uh, the, the original dot-com boom in uh, Silicon Valley. And I used to go to these meetings every Sunday with a famous management guru, a really successful capitalist. And we were talking about starting a company. And I would come home um, every Sunday afternoon and I would sort of catch the nastiness and arrogance. And we, we, we were just pounding our chest and we were acting, it was like three like testosterone poisoned males all just pounding our chest. And there's a few women in the room and we'd cut them off. We'd, we'd just be horrible. And I'd come home and my wife actually essentially told me that I wasn't allowed to go anywhere to those meetings because I'd come home and I'd act just like that at home. And as a lawyer in a feminist, she was a lawyer in those days, this was not acceptable behavior. Yeah. So I, I, so I was removed from that group by spousal interference. Completely agree with you. We all have the capability to be extremely obnoxious jerks. So then if you're a company, how do you go about weeding this out? A lot of this is standard let's build a good organizational um, or team culture. So to me, it starts with defining for the group what is, if you will, disrespectful versus respectful behavior. And here, cultural norms and organizational norms really come in because in the example I like to use is the difference between what gets you labeled as a disrespectful person in Japan versus Israel. This is not just stereotypical. There's very good evidence that, that there's much different norms about what, what constitutes respectful behavior. So arguing and, and interrupting people in the Israeli culture is not, it's not viewed as a particularly bad thing. That's just, it's just sort of that kind of culture. In Japan, that is something that is unacceptable. So, so you got to kind of got to start with what what is viewed as is uh, respectful behavior in this in this culture. So, if you have people in senior management positions who say that uh, we're respectful, we're civilized, but they're constantly berating people, treating people with disrespect, backstabbing them, then you end up having all sorts of troubles. Since your organization is pressed forward, this is something that I think is especially important to talk about is if I was going to pick one diagnostic question for organizational um, cultures, I would ask what happens to people who are superstars and consistently demeaning? Because there, there really is a difference between organizations that will tolerate people who are nasty and disrespectful or maybe even encourage them who are still stars. And to, to use some names of organizations that I know of, if you compare Uber, and I've written a case on Uber, there's actually people at Uber I like, but nonetheless, especially under their founding CEO, uh, uh, Travis, they had a culture and they kind of wrote out the values that if you got ahead by toe-stepping, letting builders build, this really sort of aggressive culture that was that was pretty nasty and Travis himself displayed such behavior, that's how you got ahead. In contrast, at Netflix under Reed Hastings, although it's a very tough performance-driven culture, and they will fire you on the spot if you are not performing as an A player. But their definition of an A player is somebody who is respectful, 
who is a good team player, who doesn't stop on others on the way to the top. And that's how Reed Hastings has behaved. I, I know him a little bit as long as anybody has known him. And, and as uh, the, the founding head of HR, Patty McCord says, our motto is no assholes, no bozos. So you got to be a superstar, but you got to be civilized. And and to me, if I'm going to pick one test, that's it. And, and, and I kind of think of, and I won't name other hospitals, but one, one reason that some years ago, about nine years ago, uh, when I needed open heart surgery that I traveled to the Cleveland Clinic, when I investigated, I learned that they had um, a policy where if surgeons were superstars and jerks, they didn't last there. And that's very unusual in healthcare. And, and, and it leads to better healthcare because if you think about it, if a, if a surgeon is sort of pompous and is always right and is disrespectful and they're a star surgeon, then people like residents, nurses, anesthesiologists, they will be less likely to step in and say, gee, I think something's wrong or perhaps you made a mistake. It isn't just nice that they're nice. It actually leads to fewer medical errors. You also talk about good bosses and bad bosses, and these are all interrelated issues. If a mid-manager person in any industry, but for example, in, in the news industry, is listening to this to this podcast, and they know they've got somebody on their team who's a very good f- performer, who does very well for the organization, but who's a bit of a bully with both men and women, what would be their steps to, I mean, can people change, first of all, if they are not ultimately the powerful person that can hire and fire. They're a mid-manager who sees this behavior. What do they do? Well, first of all, uh, in some ways, we're in the person situation debate here. But but the evidence is that most people can change reasonably once they kind of get feedback. In general, I think assuming that people can get better, that's kind of a growth mindset that, that on the whole, that does seem to work. But to me, where you sort of start with this is two things. Number one, you give the person feedback that they are leaving behind them awake of others who are feeling demeaned and disrespected. That's kind of where you start. And then the second thing you do is you give them the message that if this behavior continues, we're not going to tolerate it. And I think that's kind of where it starts and you have to mean it. And if you don't have a track record of not hiring or firing people who are stars, people won't believe you. And and, and I, I kind of think that's that's where it starts. And, and that that's why, I, to go back to the Cleveland Clinic, um, some years ago, I talked to Toby Cosgrove, who's retired now, but the longtime CEO is CEO at least 15 or 20 years. And, and Toby's a very tough performance-oriented person. But Toby said that when we hire kind of superstar surgeons from Harvard and places like that, we give them a year of probation, and they don't have tenure anyways, to make sure that they're actually going to fit into the culture. And then if they don't fit in, they kind of say goodbye. And to me, that sends the real message. That sends the right message. That is absolutely brilliant. So what other organizations that you know of have taken on this kind of policy? So one of them, he actually um, endorsed one of my books. There's a, there's an organization that's called Baird, which is a financial services organization that uh, I guess they're headquartered in Wisconsin. And they ha- they're very serious about the no asshole rule. And their model is in financial services, very tough business. There's lots of jerks. 
Their model is that they don't hire or tolerate people who are jerks. They've actually been very financially successful. They get stronger um, essentially every year since uh, the downturn that we had or the meltdown that we had um, in 2009. Paul Purcell just retired as CEO recently. He said that when he interviews people, he tells them if he finds out if they're an asshole, they're, he's going to fire them. And I think that's a little bit harsh, but he says that every now and then somebody doesn't accept the job when they learn that. And and to me, that's an organization that, that maybe takes it um, a little bit too seriously. Another person who is kind of famous for doing this is, is Shonda Rhimes, the, the famous producer. And she has that, that sort of policy. Uh, the late Anthony Bourdain said that he lived by the no asshole rule. And he wouldn't work with people no matter how much they paid him, if they were going to treat him like dirt. And there are lots of organizations that have the rule. But I also would have a caveat for organizations is if you have an organization that, let's just say, has a high percentage of people who are abusive and nasty and you have promoted and rewarded them um, and hired them for years, if you just announce you have the rule, you have to be very careful because what ends up happening is that uh, just by announcing the rule does not change anything. And you end up with a situation where you are seen as both um, assholes and hypocrites, if you will, because because you've got the rule and then you've got nasty people all over the place. And I remember the head of HR of one uh, large pharmaceutical company. First, she wrote me and I had these uh, the, these conversations with her. She was brand new head of HR and she was going to institute the no asshole rule in this kind of nasty place. I kept saying to her, I kept saying, well, what are the norms or how do people treat each other? And then... She said, oh, it's nasty. We got to have the rule immediately. And I said, don't do it. So she went and she had it implemented for about three weeks. And then two of the assholes got her fired and they went back to business as usual. You know, it's like the head of R&D and in manufacturing are going to be more powerful than the head of HR and pharmaceutical company. And it was like, ah, it's just sort of like a recipe for disaster. So the, the rule about changing organizational norms, that's what we're talking about, is you start with the behavior and you start sort of chipping away at it. And unless you can fire everybody and massively change the norms, then it's hard to do. One thing I would say, if you want an example of an organization, it's really a good model of an organization, a big organization that has gone through a dramatic change in social norms to at least become more cooperative and civilized. That's Microsoft. And this is very well documented, but under uh, the leadership of uh, Satya Nardelli, if I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, is they went from an organization and and for years, I'd go visit them, and I, they would just say it openly, at, at literally in open forums, that the people who get ahead here are assholes who uh, treat others like dirt. I remember talking to senior HR officials who would say the same thing. The people who are the superstars here are the people who get ahead by stomping on others on the way to the top. And under Satya, in terms of his own behavior, in terms of the HR system, in terms of who they're hiring and promoting, they've really turned around to a more collaborative and civilized culture. And I don't think it's an accident that they're doing so well financially either. They're doing great. That's another area that we, we, we haven't even gotten into, which is a business model of how profitable and uh, successful and productive an organization can be with the right culture and values and uh, civility. Um, it's nice to know that there's places out there that are doing this. But I guess I might, this comes to the question that I do want to ask you about, which is um, if this if this kind of culture has existed and people who are bullies or harassers or, or, or extremely obnoxious jerks have been out there and um, are thriving, um, you know, you do have a chapter in your book, which is about the virtues of being an asshole. I wish it wasn't true. 
true, but there are situations where leaving other people feeling demeaned and de-energized just might work. And let's let sort of like go through the evidence. Uh, first of all, if you are in a competitive I win, you lose game. Um, and although it might not be great for the overall system, leaving other people feeling demeaned and de-energized will help you get ahead. Furthermore, sort of to take a page out of the Steve Jobs playbook, if you weaponize disrespect, you might leave competitors and other organizations feeling demeaned and de-energized. So, 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 so if you're in a system like that, the only way to protect yourself and to get ahead, if it's a pure backstabbing sort of culture, probably works. And, and, uh, and if you're really nice and cooperative and treat others with respect when everybody else is being stabbed, sort of a, a Game of Thrones situations, it's not going to work. So... So, sorry, but, but, but uh, you know, on the whole, and we haven't talked about this, but there's evidence that when people are cooperative and treat one another with respect, you're going to have more performance, you're going to have better people staying, you're going to have more creativity. But if the game, and, and that's, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Chris Yeh, uh, author of a book on, called Blitzscaling, uh, he, he always asks the question, what's the game here? And if the game is I win, you lose game, and, and nasty people are the ones who get promoted and hired, it's really hard to be civilized in such situations. The other thing which we haven't talked about is that, is that there, there are strategic situations where leaving people feeling demeaned and de-energized probably is correct. I think there are specific situations where kind of strategic temper tantrums or disrespect can help people get ahead. Um, there's this really interesting study uh, done by a, by a former colleague of mine, uh, Barry Stive, one of my co-authors at UC Berkeley. And what he did with, by the way, men's and women's teams and also um, uh, high school and uh, college basketball teams, he looked at uh, essentially temper tantrums by the coaches at halftime. And what he found, it's really interesting, was that the coaches who were never yelled at the teams and always yelled at the teams that didn't work very well, but the coaches who occasionally had a temper tantrum and were demeaning and aggressive to uh, their players, they actually would do better in the second half of the basketball games. And the reason Barry proposes, uh, Barry and his colleagues propose, is, is that what happens is that if somebody doesn't usually yell at you and isn't usually disrespectful and they get mad, you might think, gee, maybe it's my fault, right? So, because they're they're not a certified asshole. So that's that, so so that's one. So I have various rules. If you want to be a successful asshole, one is don't be all asshole all the time. You got to be strategic about when you when you sort of lay into people versus not. That's uh, that's that's what we're hearing from the basketball study. Another one that, that that I talk about is is to sort of adjust the notion that there are some people who actually do well when they're treated a little bit nastily, and other people just crumble. So you got to figure out where you use it. And the final thing, and, and this is very important for, I think, of some of our Silicon Valley CEOs who are nasty and have gotten ahead, and I won't use any names in the name of uh, sort of self-defense for us, is that I always talk about having somebody to clean up the mess or a, to have a toxic handler. And this is the notion that you have the nasty CEO and then you have the person who follows sort of like uh, the people who follow like the parade, the circus parades and clean up all the, the elephant poop and everything. That, 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 that's the person who sort of comes in later and says, well, um, he just had a bad day or he didn't mean to be so nasty and, uh, and, and, and he'll forget about it and, and it's not your fault and sort of like cools out the person. 
Uh, so, so I think it, that's one thing I always recommend. If if you're going to be a jerk, don't be all jerk all the time. Have a toxic and have a toxic um, handler to sort of clean things up. Interesting. Yeah. No, I have I have your book in front of me here. Create a toxic tandem. But I, I, one other thing that I know you've been talking about a lot recently, and 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 um, I appreciate your time with us. So so um, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, you've talked a bit about friction, and I believe this is something you're working on right now. You want to tell us a little bit about that? So by friction, and I got interested in this just because I work with so many organizations, and in my own organization, I start wondering, well what makes things hard to do and what make things easy to do and, and why can't we do something about things like uh, filling out an expense report is so difficult at Sanford that at times I just give up and pay for it and myself because I just can't stand dealing with the system. So so, so my colleague Huggy Rao and I are interested in we're doing what's called the friction project. But maybe what we should do, uh, given the focus here, is to talk about uh, where, where friction and sort of the asshole problem meet. It and one of the kind of things I'm really interested in is we call them grease people and gunk people. So you think about all of us have been members of big bureaucracies. And yes, bureaucracies make things hard to do. But there's this magical difference. And I certainly see this at Stanford. There are some people who are in the same bureaucracy. When you go to them, they want to help you. They, Their whole goal is to say yes and to help you navigate through the bureaucracy to do something that's good for our students, for our research. And they're grease people. But then there's people who are in almost identical positions who seem to take pleasure from making you suffer as much as possible. Some people call these rule Nazis, the, the people who always... Uh, ask for more and more uh, sort of revisions and make things as hard as possible. And, and, and these people, uh, petty tyrants, rule Nazis, whatever you want to call them, there's some really interesting research that shows that uh, although it might be a personality uh, defect, and you could produce this in the laboratory, that when somebody treats you like that, you might want to stop and think about their position. Because, because a reliable way in the laboratory to get somebody to act like that is to give them some power but to treat them with low prestige. And so one of the solutions with people like that is to show them more respect, to use some, if you will, love bombing. So to me, that's a situation where people who we see as jerks and we say, oh, that that person, um, he or she, is they're really nasty, they're a rule Nazi, they're a petty tyrant. It might just be because they themselves are being treated badly. And there's one thing that we know about disrespect. or it, It's really contagious. Well, I think we can all agree that none of us are perfect, right? That is something that we can all, hand on heart, believe full full on that that is, that is a statement of truth. The one other thing I would add, which we've implied but have not um, gotten to, it's really interesting to look at uh, essentially good national surveys of the frequency with which people are nasty in the workplace. And essentially what you have is about 50% of, uh, of people in the workforce will say that sometime or another they've been the victims of jerks uh, or they've seen it happen right in front of them. And typically about 10% of the workforce reports that they're experiencing, say, abusive supervision at any one time. But if you ask people how often they've been the, the, the perpetrator, that asshole, it's generally less than one half of 1%. So there's sort of a disconnect there that people are quick to label others as jerks, but slow to label themselves. So, so to counteract this bias, when somebody, when you encounter somebody and you say, oh, that person's an asshole, I would sort of slow down. And, and my 
my motto is be slow to label others as assholes and be quick to label yourself as one to at least begin to fight that bias. I had one other question, the chicken or the egg? Do we teach it first or do we address it at the corporate level first? How, where, or do you do it both at the same time? I mean, where, where, where do you think is the most effective strategy in, in addressing this kind of behavior? My answer to that with sort of chickens and eggs is, is that uh, life isn't exactly like that. You kind of need to deal with both at the same time. So if you just have the training, and we, we know this, by the way, from sexual harassment training very well, we have increasing evidence that if you just have the training and you don't change anything, uh, nothing happens, right? Uh, so, so to me, having training um, and having the organizational structure, the, uh, uh, the, the rewards, the leadership behavior, that the, that the training's not gonna work if all that other stuff isn't also taken care of. So you kind of have to do both at the same time. And honestly, I'm kind of cynical about uh, training that's disconnected from uh, the stuff of organizational life where it happens, because very often it's used as a symbolic response to a problem that the organization refuses to uh, fix. It's, you know, like I'm seeing chief ethics officers now. Well, it seems to me like that's the CEO job. You don't need a chief ethics officer. Some, some chief ethics officer is not going to like that I said that, but I, I believe that it's true. And, and, so, and so I don't think a chief civility officer is a good idea. To me, that's something that has to be ingrained in the, in the norms of the organization. If I was going to bet on something, um, I, I would bet on, uh, well, what, how, does the, how do the senior executives act? Who is promoted? Uh, um, wh how do people generally behave? And one thing we haven't talked about that's really important is what happens when there's transgressions, when people blow it? Do people look the other way or do, are all their colleagues quick to call it out and to gently pr pull the person aside and say, we don't treat one another that way? So so, so I guess I'm, I'm not a huge fan of training as a standalone solution. You leave us with a lot to talk about with Carolyn and myself in the debrief. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. It's, it's really fun to talk to you. And I've, I've enjoyed uh, talking to both you and Carolyn. After each interview, we like to have a debrief to make some sense of the themes discussed. Joining us for today's conversation is the executive producer for audio at The Washington Post, Madalie Kasika. And she also runs Post Reports, The Washington Post's daily news podcast. Madalika is an award-winning broadcast journalist who has had prominent roles at NPR, ABC News, PBS, and Mike. She also worked for NBC News in London and CBS News in Tokyo. Also joining us is our resident expert, Press Forward's Chief Visionary Officer, Carolyn McGordy-Seppel. Carolyn, I want to start with you. What a great conversation and so much to talk about. I don't even, I'm not even sure where to start. What would you like to tackle first? I'm just so honored that we got a chance to talk to Professor Bob Sutton, who's an expert on management, has written seven books, as you know, but his ability to articulate the challenge of quote-unquote assholes in the workplace has truly struck a chord with Americans across industries because so much of our time is spent at work. Our managers have a huge impact on our happiness and our health and our ability to function at work. And then most of the time, right now, Americans feel like they are unhappy, they feel like they're in an uncivil environment. So what Sutton has done has truly created the language around what makes acceptable leadership, what makes an asshole, what makes a good person, and how can we stand up for ourselves and talk about behaviors that are good and bad. Because our bosses, uh, our colleagues, have huge impacts on our ability to survive in the workplace. 
Madalika, what are your thoughts? I actually found it really validating. Sometimes, you know, people don't believe you when you raise things that you've experienced and to have the imprimatur of someone who has studied this, I think really helps the case for all of us who are trying to work towards improving workplace culture. What I found really interesting about what he said is that we're all at times, every once in a while, we're all assholes. <laughs> and so we have to we have to constantly look inwards. We all have to remember to be slow. I think he said to be slow to call somebody else a, a jerk, but to be very quick to look at yourself and call yourself a jerk. I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows people like this. And I think the harder thing that he talked about that I'd love to get your thoughts on, Manalika, I'll start with you, is when you have people who are less obvious, how do you find those people in an organization and how do you address that? It's really important that the leadership comes from the top. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to use this phrase, culture carriers. And I think the example he gave of Microsoft and how they turned themselves around was Satya Nadal clearly was a culture carrier in that situation. Mm -hmm. And if it permeates from the top, it becomes a lot easier for people below that level to know that they are in a situation where they can call something out. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a much more openness, much more dialogue, and if leadership has modeled the behavior that they want, then I think it's a lot easier. We're used to hierarchies where most people are concerned with managing up, and we've all known assholes who've managed up, <laughs> and who have treated their peers or the people below them with disrespect. I think that, you know, leadership matters, leadership matters, leadership matters. Yeah. Carolyn? I love that you bring this up because in his research and his book, he talks about the temporary versus the certified asshole. And he talks about how we can all be temporary assholes. We can spout off angry emails. We can be rude in the moment. But certified assholes are those who are consistently mean, spirited, demeaning, disrespectful to their colleagues and peers. And he also has, has spoken about how it's easy to think of the asshole as the individual who has veins bulging out of their necks that they scream at you. But what's more pernicious and perhaps what are greater villains or um, assholeish behavior are those who are kind to your face and quite charming, as you say, but then silently ruin the reputations of their colleagues behind the scenes and engage in backstabbing and can be very harmful also for women and people of color who are not used to seeing in positions of power having their reputation smeared behind the scenes when we're not used to seeing them demonstrate certain types of of behavior that make them successful or competent professionals. So being aware of that type of nasty behavior, I think is really critical to creating the workplaces that we all want in order to fulfill our potential. We're obviously having this conversation because of Press Forward's work and changing culture in newsrooms. And the reason why we all came together to create Press Forward was because of men in the newsrooms who had been sexually harassing. But I think it's also important to understand that in the last two years that we've started, Carolyn and I have heard from loads of men who have come forward mm -hmm. to say the guys that were harassing were also real jerks and they were abusing power and they were manipulative and they derailed our careers. It's interesting you raise that because when all this, these stories have come out in the last two years, you know, I've talked to men in our profession in journalism who have said, oh, well, I knew that guy was a total jerk, but I didn't know about the harassment stuff. So it becomes fairly obvious to everyone. And, you know, I, I believe that not every asshole becomes a 
harasser, but every harasser was probably an asshole. And this is why, you know, the culture that you set from the very beginning, if you can, you know, just catch this kind of behavior early on before it has set in. Bob Sutton talked about the example of you know, HR that wants to put out a rule and change everything overnight. Well, Mm -hmm. if you've had decades of a company where this has been tolerated, Mm -hmm. you're not going to change it that way. The other thing that was heartening for me was to hear him talk about examples where it did not hurt the business to implement rules like this. You know, he talked about Microsoft, he talked about the Cleveland Clinic. And I think as people get more aware, people speak with their wallets and reputational damage can become something that companies have to think about. And if you also in a competitive job market, you want to get the best people. And if the wrap on your company and your industry is eh, it's really full of assholes, you might not get the best people. And it's everywhere. It's not just a news India. I mean, this is across industries. This is this is ubiquitous in terms of every corner of earth at this point has has problems with this kind of behavior. So it's not just the news industry. We have to be sure that people are listening, understand that's everywhere. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think the words he used to describe behavior, it's demean, diminish, or disrespect mm-hmm. your coworkers. Right. And that can happen in a fast food restaurant, that can happen at the highest ranks of network television news in corporate America. And, you know, just learning a bit of respect for your fellow man when you come in is something that's kind of underrated. Well, and Bob Sutton also writes in his book, The No Asshole Rule, that the difference between how a person treats the powerless versus the powerful is as good a measure of human character as I know. And so all, a lot of this is about power. As, as we know, the Me Too movement wasn't necessarily about gender, it was about power and abuse of it. And the reason why women were so disproportionately impacted about harassment was because we haven't seen them in positions of power. So elevating their voices and helping them get into leadership is a critical part of this. But if we believe that women are equal, they can be equally bad. And so grounding the discussion in ethics and values and creating respectful and civil workplace culture is a huge part of how we make progress. Madalika, you have served in so many different newsrooms and and you've had such a long and an impressive career. I wanted to ask you if you had any examples of news leaders who have handled conflict or mistake or breaking news or some of these pressure cooking situations without being an asshole. <laughs> Well, actually, yes. I mean, Diana and I, we used to work together and our executive producer was not a screamer. But I think that's learned. You have to work hard at learning how to do it and have confidence to know that you can have success. I'm a huge Roger Federer fan and people would find it hard to believe that when he was a teenage tennis player, he screamed, he threw rackets, he did all of those things and he mentally changed how he behaved and he got awesome results. So you have to kind of work at it too. You and I have talked about our executive producer many times because I think we've heard the stories of people who are in, who are motivated by fear and who do things out of fear. And, and that is the leader who is a screamer, who is, who is threatening, intimidating, all of that. And our executive producer was not that. And I, I've thought about this in the past, why he got such great results out of all of us. And I think it's because he instead of leading out of fear, it was out of inspiration. It, it was out of pulling you yeah. up and allowing you to have confidence in yourself and, and hopefully get the best out of you. And you wanted to. And I don't right. know if that's part, just me or if that's everybody in the newsroom. I, I think that, that, again, that comes out of respect. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the thing is, you're going to get a better product mm-hmm. overall mm-hmm. if the people you are working with feel inspired to do the work that they want to do and want 
themselves to be better. Mm -hmm. If you are going to be screaming and berating at them the whole time, they're just going to be like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll push a button or do this or do that. Bob Seddon also writes about the dirty dozen, the common everyday actions that assholes use. And uh, I thought about this a lot because assholes may not be aware that they're assholes. And it's important to, to kind of recognize what are the things that people can do consistently to become a certified assholes versus the, the daily acts that contribute to incivility. And, and so let me just read through them. The first one is personal insults. The second one's invading one's personal territory, uninvited physical contact, threats, intimidation, both verbal and nonverbal, sarcastic jokes and teasing used as insult delivery systems, withering email flames, status slaps intended to humiliate their victims, public shaming or status degradation rituals, rude interruptions, two-faced attacks, dirty looks, and treating people as if they are invisible. I think the, the last one's really important to discuss in the newsroom, I think, because a lot of newsrooms that were part of the, the scandals where there had been serious harassers, leaders at the top were, were surprised that some of these things had happened on their watch. And after speaking with some of the women who were affected and some of the bystanders, many of them said it was because they didn't feel empowered to come to their managers and leaders to talk about these issues because they felt invisible. So an executive producer who wouldn't call a desk assistant by their name for the first month that they worked there or wouldn't say hello to people in the hallway. I mean, they, they might be involved in their own little world and the stress of getting a show on air or, or meeting a deadline. But I think sometimes leaders and managers forget how these daily interactions with people with less power than them can really impact their ability to thrive in the workplace and feel safe to come forward, whether to report harassment or maybe even to share an idea about a story or some aspect of the business model that can change journalism. And creating safety just by saying hello to someone actually has a lot of um, impact in a young person's career. Those things you laid out, Carolyn, are compounded by this idea of superstar employees. And when there's a focus on superstar employees, and certainly in broadcast media, the men behaving badly, as I'll call them, were considered superstars. And that seemed to override anything else that may have been happening. So how do you deal with an in an industry, whether it's media, whether it's finance, whether it's medicine, with the superstars and weigh the pros and cons of what you get out of a superstar versus how it affects everybody else? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we are at a uniform place of understanding what is best in those situations. We need to broaden this out also, though. It's not just about harassment. It's not just about abuse of power. Abuse of power is the evil that contributes to somebody being a harasser, but it's also discrimination mm -hmm. and it's also bullying. And to the intersectionality of these issues, Madalika, I would love to hear your thoughts on how do you view um, the direction that organizations need to go in order to make sure that they are representing everybody in, in, a, in an organization. Hiring really matters. Yeah. You know, it's really easy to hire somebody who looks like you or reminds you of yourself in a different time in your life. And when we were growing up in journalism, we were run by white men who saw other young white men as the, oh, I can so see myself in him. And it perpetuates generations of men who then support other men. I think it's really important for leaders to understand that they have things to learn. Just because you have become a leader doesn't mean you stop, but it requires some humility in being able to recognize that. And that doesn't come easy to any of us. And listening. Yeah. Listening to feedback. Yeah. 
Manalika, if there's an industry that understands being a voice to the voiceless, it's journalism. So as we look inwards to the newsrooms and try to understand how this issue festered in our newsrooms for so long. Why is it so important that we take a look inwards and we do get this right? You know, people come to us for news and information and it should be a wake up call to everybody because we are very good at looking into how other companies, how governments, how corporations operate. We are really bad at looking at ourselves. And what has been revealed in the last two years is a hell of a lot of dirty laundry. And that's why I think it's really important for us to have a reckoning so that we can continue to hold the position that we feel is vital in a vibrant democracy. I think that's been a little tarnished. Absolutely. So we we always end our podcast on a silver lining. And I know that, Carolyn, I'm going to turn to you first. If you if out of this whole conversation today, what would be your silver lining out of out of the conversation with Bob or, or our debrief today? For those who are, are tuning in the first time, we use the, the word silver lining after the Me Too movement because some of the women came together after all the bad behavior when we realized that the silver lining was we got to meet and connect with all these other amazing women and people who wanted to advance workplace culture and newsrooms and beyond and solve these issues. So for me, a silver lining from the no asshole rule is just this concept that you don't have to work in an environment where you can't be your it's better to leave and to be strong and to stay true to your own values and ethics than to try and fit into a place where you won't be successful. And it's okay to take a stand. You have more power than you think you do. Natalika? I actually would totally endorse what Carolyn said, but one silver lining I will take from uh, Bob Sutton is he said that evidence shows us that most people can change with feedback. It's science, right? There's evidence. And we should take heart that we can help people change and we ourselves can change. But the downside to that is you have to work at it and be willing to put in the work. And I think that's something that every one of us in every workplace needs to really think about and work on. You both said exactly what I was going to say. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Diana. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Diana Pierce Burgess, the Executive Director of Press Forward. Visit us online at www.thepressforward.org. Join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Press Forward Now on Facebook and at The Press Forward on Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to catch our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. We'll see you next week.